0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Player's Voice, where this week we are joined by Andrew all Jane Addams to reflect on important lessons in life, sport and business. My name is Alan O'Mara. I'm the host of this podcast, a former cabin goalkeeper, and I'm now a performance and wellbeing consultant with sports and business leaders around the world. In this wide-ranging conversation, Jane shares her journey to self-acceptance and happiness after initially struggling to accept that she was gay. Jane highlights how resilience, courage and adaptability have helped her to navigate the ups and downs of life as an entrepreneur. Her portfolio in Belfast includes Manny's, the well-known fish and chip shops and pizza guys. She also speaks about the life-changing legacy of the Good Friday Agreement ahead of the 25-year anniversary and shares her passions and hopes for United Ireland in the future. The Player's Voice is brought to you by the Gaelic Players Association in collaboration with Real Talks. The podcast series is part of BIO360, a GPA program that empowers intercounty players across four key areas. Life skills, well-being, dual career and transitions. Please go to BIO360.GalicPlayers.com to learn more. To find out more about my work as a performance and well-being consultant, please go to www.realtalks.e or you can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at AOMMcCath. But for now, please sit back, relax and enjoy The Player's Voice with Jane Adams. Jane Addams, thanks so much for joining us on The Player's Voice. It's a real pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here.
0: We are very, very welcome. And again, a conversation I'm really looking forward to having. I suppose as we sit here today, how would you reflect back in, you know, you look in the rear view mirror of your your playing career in terms of what your club and what your county and a lot of the conversations we've had so far in the player's voice has been with players who are maybe still playing or just very fresh out of it. So I was kind of curious to get a perspective of someone who's able to look back a little further and kind of on those days on the field.
1: I suppose I always say hindsight's a wonderful thing Um, so in my stage now I'm I'm looking back and it's it's quite a few years now um, that I retired especially from uh, county Uh, 2013 was the last game I played so the retire and then now I look back I'm able to see all the good things and appreciate a lot more because whenever you're in the thick of it you're not appreciating it you might think uh, you're sacrificing a load of things and 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 now you look at it and you're thinking, well, it's exactly what I wanted to do. And those sacrifices weren't actually sacrifices. Uh, it was a privilege to be playing with the people that I was playing with, the managers that was taking us and all the things that we achieved together And uh, now is so much more uh, wonderful to think about and to reminisce about. And it's it's great to be able to look back at, on so many fond memories.
0: So when you look back now, what are those kind of fond memories that the not the- big ones that kind of come to mind straight away.
1: Uh, winning the All-Ireland club title, um, uh, obviously in 2008, and even whenever I say 2008, it doesn't feel like it's 15 years away, uh, 15 years ago, it just feels like it was maybe even five years ago. So that's my fondest memory and the reason why it's the fault and it's not just because we we'll won. Suppose it was the journey getting there, um, the sacrifices that you made, but again... They're not sacrifices because it was the, your, your ultimate goal. It's what you wanted uh, the whole time that you were playing the sport to win a Club All-Ireland senior title with your with your club, with your community. So, And I, I keep saying this as well whenever I think about it. It wasn't just, uh, we didn't just win it for Ross. We won it for West Belfast, the Falls Road. So it was for a lot of clubs in West Belfast and, and Altram and Ulster. And to be the first team to be able to do that, to lift the Bill Carl Cup, and 40 years history was an unbelievable experience. So that'll always stick out as uh, as my most fondest memory forever and it'll never be changed.
0: Yeah, like it must have been such an incredible experience because I kind of, as you alluded to there, like it wasn't just your club or your family, like it kind of stretched wider and you felt like you were part of of probably something bigger and represented something bigger. Not Like it must have been such a nice feeling, was it?
1: Yeah, it was unbelievable. I think anybody that's experienced any type of win at being an All-Ireland is is always, like, it's a momentous occasion. Everybody strives to be the, at the top of their game and to be able to actually achieve it and to put it out there to your club and your community, it, it's even more more powerful. And, and now I still look back and think that was such a, a groundbreaking thing for us to be able to do and I was delighted to be able to do it. Sl- uh, Sloughney uh, was eight years. Took them eight years to be able to for to be the second club in Ulster ever to win it. So it just shows you that it was such a big, huge task. But we always knew that we we were capable of doing it. And once we did do it, it was uh, so much uh, more enjoyable because of everybody that Ulster Falls Road West Belfast. Everybody enjoyed it.
0: And like you mentioned, hindsight earlier, and like. As, as a player at that time, were you able to fully appreciate that journey? I know you mentioned Eric, you mentioned the journey. Like, where were you appreciating it at the time? Or were you kind of in it and focused on the, kind of the process or the games and kind of what was happening at the time?
1: Uh, well, for me, I think Camogie, every time I woke up, if I had training, uh, a match, I couldn't wait to get out to play Camogie. Uh, so it didn't matter. Yes, you're on the journey and you want to achieve your ultimate goal. And you're very, very focused, but I was I was quite aware that this isn't going to last for me forever. I'd been on an All-Ireland campaign with Antrim when I was 15 in 1997, and it wasn't until 1987 we won the Junior All-Ireland and I thought, next year I'm going to be... I was a sub that day, and next year I'll be on the team and we'll win All-Ireland and you'll just progress. But it doesn't actually really happen that way. So whenever you're back in 87, then I knew... Whenever I got the like in around 2008, where we were winning the club All Ireland or or winning stuff with the county, I knew that it didn't always happen. So I knew even hindsight then taught me that this doesn't last forever. So enjoy it while you're while you're on this journey, and not to let not to think that it's a sacrifice that you're actually put here and you're given the opportunity to do it. So whatever it took, I was happy to do it, and then it was very much supported by all of my family who really really bought into it as well. So. I did enjoy the journey along the way, and and loved every single moment of it, except from when we got beat.
0: <laughs> listen to you there, Jane. Like it also sounds like Kimogi got a hold of you pretty young. Like at a young age, you identified. Hey, listen. Like I get joy from this. This is something to put my energy into, my time into. And it actually like gives you kind of whatever what you're looking for. Did it?
1: Uh, yes, and again, like looking back. Um, I so I was obsessive about camogie. I loved every minute of it. I, I loved getting up to go training. I, I loved knowing the night before, OK, I have a match tomorrow. And even going into whenever you're playing so young, you're playing under 14, then you're playing under 16, you're playing junior, then you're playing senior, and then you're playing for the county as well. So every single day you would have had something on. And I enjoyed that. And I know it's player burnout and all of that. But back, in that, back then, I didn't care. I just wanted to immerse myself into it. Um, and now knowing the person that I am today, again, looking back um, and having the beauty of being able to look back and say, that's why I was doing that. So I, I didn't realise as a kid that camogie was my my safe, space, my safe place. So uh, whenever, obviously, whenever you're younger, I didn't maybe never knew that I was gay and I didn't really know myself. So me playing camogie and having something to completely focus on took my mind off anything else. It wouldn't no matter what was going on outside of my outside of my camogie I ju- as soon as I got into playing it ju- no matter what kind of worry it was school or anything it just went the way whenever I started playing camogie so it really was something that that gave me a safe, sp- safe place and somewhere where I forgot about everything
0: that was yeah it's like it It sounds like as I'm listening to you there Jane is um you kind of at a young age, you're more comfortable with like Jane Jane Adams, the Kamogi player, rather than who you are as a person. Would that be fair to say? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. Uh, I I was happy with the. Uh, obviously, uh, I've been brought up very very well. My mummy and daddy were very very uh, close family, and my sisters. But playing whenever you're playing Kamogi, it was just, that was my main focus. Even even a uh, academic like I wasn't that academic in school. I just couldn't wait to get out to play Kamogi. I went to Jordanstown, and the simple fact that Jordanstown won the Ashburn Cup, and I wanted to do the same thing. So, everything was geared towards how I'm going to play camogie, what time did I get out of school to go and play camogie, and to be fair, my mummy and daddy allowed me to do that. And looking back as well, it, it does like it. It might be it's a bit obsessive, and people talk about now that. Like a uh, like, so young Donald Nugent who says he threw himself into things because he had other things going on. I might not have had that many things going on, but whenever I did have going on, Camogie took that away for it and, and was able to just get onto the field. And it was just unbelievable feeling. So my focus just was all on that and I loved every minute of it.
0: What well, was it about the game or the sport, Jane, That was Jane, that was able to give you that? I think you you described it like as a safe space. So stuff might have been bubbling in the back of your head, or you were still working. You're working through things personally, and we'll come to that obviously later in the conversation. But what was it about the game at that point that's able to kind of make you have that sense of if it's self assuredness or? I think I'll just go back to the word, like the phrase "safe space" is what you used.
1: Yeah. Um, well, whenever I start, as soon as I started playing, um, I played for I played when it was P7, but as soon as I started playing. I just, first ball I got, it was like, all right, this is good. And I think very early on, I I knew that I was kind of good at it. And that's my type of personality that I have is like, if I like something, I'm going to give it my all. And even back then when I was a kid, I was like, I couldn't, uh, whenever I was on my own, I was solo running in the school that was next door to me. I just wanted to make myself better. And uh, I remember in 1990, uh, my daddy took me to Croke Park to watch Kilkenny and Aldrin play. And I see there was a guy who was playing for County, and he caught the ball and he soloed up the pitch and put the ball in the back of the net. And whenever I seen him doing that, I was like, oh, my God, like this, this sport is unbelievable. It just captured me it just right there. And then I just went, I love this. I love everything about it. For me to try and do new tricks and for catching the ball, solo running um, taking the ball off somebody or like chasing somebody and knocking the ball off their stick. I just wanted to do that. And I wanted to get myself better and better and better. And it was because I really enjoyed it that it it was easy to become better because I never stopped practicing and I never stopped. Um, like if somebody took the ball off me, I wanted to get that ball back. And I think that even in a team scenario, it was like, just get the ball back. Like you just don't have to be dirty about it. Just work your very hardest. And I think within Kamugi, I just worked very, very hard and, and enjoyed making myself get better and better and better.
0: Oh, uh, what age then does it click for you that okay, like um, I love this game. I'm crazy about this game. Like you talk about that memory of being at the at the the hurling game. you like what age does it click for you that oh, I could, I can keep getting better and better at this, but I can also like be one of the best and trace my dreams and like kind of do these things that I've been thinking about for a couple of years.
1: Um. And, and when I was 14 I transferred to Rossa, and we uh, within two months we were going to the Fela in Limerick and we won a, we've won the Fela Division 3 um, so again that was like the start of like that was the biggest thing that you'd ever won as a kid and you're going down again with your teammates and this is amazing Um, and then just again starting to play for the county senior team whenever I was 15 Jim Nelson had brought me onto the panel I never really thought I never really thought like oh, I'm going to be the best or... But I always, always set my sights on somebody that I thought was was good, like Grace McMullen or somebody, and I thought, right, I'm going to try and beat Grace in the race today, even though she's maybe 10 years older than me and an absolutely amazing. I was like, I want to try and beat her. If I can beat her in this race, or then that'll be good. And then if somebody else knew, younger coming in, um, I would have thought the same. OK, well, they're very good. So what have they got that I don't have that I can maybe take from them and that it'll make me better? Um, I think when it clicked that it was actually decent was actually I don't know. I just kept on seeing different wee targets and whenever I seen a target I thought, I wanna do that and there would have been like a kind of a vision board in my head and I didn't ever really wanna say the, the stuff out loud in case it scudded myself, but I would have said when I was under sixteen, I wanna win this and I wanna get the player of the match. But I never said anything about it, I never talked about it, I never I just thought it to myself and Every time I kind of done that, I knew I actually got, I achieved it. And then going on to the, whenever being a wee bit older, it was, I never really had any doubt. And I think the doubt would only creep in whenever I wasn't enjoying it. So for me, it was just all about the enjoying. And if I was enjoying it, then I could have done really anything uh, that was it within my capabilities that or within my environment that I was in. And I just, I think that's the way that I looked at it. If I'm enjoying it. I don't think there's anything that can stop me from gaining it. And that was the way I thought.
0: And did you speak like did you enjoy competing against like I suppose that competitor's mindset of competing against teammates or if it was opposition tried to be better? Was that one of the things that kind of did help you propel forward? Like that, like I think you said like the like smaller steps or like goals there. I kind of bring it down to smaller things, but it definitely sounds like there was a a competitive spirit or a competitive mindset to who you are as a person.
1: yes, I'm definitely competitive uh anytime like, like I said, I was very lucky probably to have so many um senior there players within our club uh, as well and all so I would have said, okay, if they're getting the ball, I want to get the ball off them and it was just that wee bit of competitiveness that probably did make me that wee bit better because I always wanted to win. I never wanted to lose. Didn't have a huff about losing, but that's because I probably didn't lose that many things within our team. <laughs> probably a different per- a different time that I would have maybe said if a younger kid had to come in, I would have went, right, okay, this is a new person that's coming along. Let me see how I can, what how I, what I can do to get better than them. Are they going to be able to beat me in a race? Are they not? But I kind of thrive in team situations and I think teams make me better. I know sometimes I, you might be the one that's winning the race or you might be the one that's putting the ball over the bar. But in an individual scenario, I don't know if I actually would have exhaled as much as what I did because the team pushes you on. And again, looking back, you know that it's the team that's pushing you on. It's OK, getting out a run for yourself. But how do you know when to start to speed up? How do you know um, when to turn the corner? Do you know what I mean? So a t- team definitely pushes me and and also then winning and and also pulling people along with you or having a wee joke with people, Um, oh, you're not going to, you'll not beat me today and, and people having that wee joke with me and I think probably at the end of my career, I probably went, I don't really want to be as that competitive anymore because, and that may have been another wee factor in me saying, that's me done because I'd done it for so long and I was getting to a stage where I was like, I have other things going on in my life, like my businesses and all the rest of it, that needs my focus and attention. And if I want to continue giving 100 million percent for kumugi, then it's going to take me to still be as competitive as ever. And that's probably another reason why I did actually stop.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that to you, because, like, you said you stopped playing your the card to you in was it 2013, you said earlier. So, like... Was listening to you there like listening to that kind of mindset and then even from an energy perspective like you're taking energy in from around the team but you're also spending it quite quickly time to drive forward or compete and kind of getting like a vision of that little circle in my head of like energy in from your teammates but also that energy's then going out straight away to be competitive to be a driving force Um I'm just curious as I'm listening to you there kind of and we're talking about Kamogi. what kind of teammate were you when you reflect on it so in terms of your own head being competitive and being driven and I know like when I was reading match reports like you were definitely a huge scoring threat at the top of the pitch and did a lot of damage on the scoreboard but when you look back now kind of how would you see yourself as a teammate in the wider group
1: uh well I do think that I'm a good teammate I do think that it was again because I, I like team situations um even in a business sense now, like we have a lot of team around us, and I'm very aware. My mummy and daddy have always made us, uh, made us believe that there's my mummy and daddy, and then I have three sisters, so we've I've always been part of a team. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully, if you asked other people the same question, that was I a good teammate? I do think that I, I do think that it was, but there's always going to be flaws and faults somewhere, and I'm sure there's people out there that didn't think it was so much of a good teammate. But <laughs> for me. I, I enjoy, because I so much enjoyed being part of a team, I think I like to bring people on and um, there's no point in me being at the top of my game if everybody else is, is below me. Um, a big thing that I'm into is that I'm equal to everybody, you're equal to me, there's nobody that's any better than me, there's nobody any less than me and that's the way I carry through my life on everything. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how much money you don't have, it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, we're all equal. And I... Do genuinely believe that if we're all equal then we all have the same amount of resources we have everything that everybody else has and I don't believe that anybody else should have any more or any less than anybody else and that's the way that I like to carry myself so um, as a teammate yeah, I hope it was good there's times that it probably was that not so good being cheeky or asking too much of people again at the end of my career I was maybe asking a wee bit too much of people and that's what we never probably had a huff with people because they wanted to go and have babies (laughs) or wanted to go and get married. So yes, there's a bit of selfishness within, but I think that becomes, I think that comes um, from most elite people in their sport. I think until you actually go, hold on a wee second, the world doesn't revolve around you. And my mum and daddy again are very good to tell me there's a light bulb in the, in the ceiling there, Jane, but not everybody revolves around you. So As soon as I get a wee bit too high above my part, I get slapped back down anyway. So I'll always uh, try and keep a a level playing field for everybody and that's the, the way that I get on.
0: So I suppose when does your perspective start widening, Jane, from going from that kind of very focused teammate, almost looking at other teammates, being like, what are you doing, like stepping away to do this or life's taking them in that? At what point does kind of that next part of the journey start happening to you, or maybe you're zooming out of it or seeing a bigger picture or wanting more?
1: Uh well, I've been involved in business for, for probably nearly all my life. My mummy and daddy have uh bars in West Belfast and uh, my daddy had a like a, a building company. So I've always I've always been involved in in business in some shape or form. Um I'm very lucky that I have a business partner in my sister who took on a lot of the lot uh, really an awful lot of the hard work whenever I was so focused. But I think in 2013, what had happened was my grandfather had died. And two weeks later, we were playing against, uh, we were playing in the All-Ireland semi-final. And I remember thinking, I'm here and it's, I'm devastated about my granddad. And, and it's just like, hold on. There's other things that it doesn't, like the morning that my granddad was there, and I was on my way and I was in the hospice and I knew um, I knew he was Dan, and my I was going there friendly. And my daddy, my daddy, rang me, and usually my mum and my daddy are saying, "Go to the match, do this and do whatever." And I remember thinking, "So I need to get to this match." but My granddad's Dan and I love him more than anything in the world. And I start, I went, I was on my way to the match because I felt I was going to let people down, and I felt we we're in a low iron semi final now. The match was ten days away or whatever, and um, my daddy rang me and he said, "Just come back to the hospital," and I was like no problem and straight away I went back to the hospital I think that kind of changed me as well And thinking, listen it is brilliant and it is what it is but it, it's not going to pay my bills, it, it doesn't support me emotionally, it doesn't think so I went straight back to the hospital and probably within the next six hours my granda had died so it was the right call to make and and I probably a wee tiny bit thought if I go he won't die so it was probably again blocking it out, just if I go out and play camogie nothing really matters he'll be fine when I get out but I think it started kind of changing then and started thinking, okay, well, there has to come a time where you, you're going to move into other things or you have to focus completely on your business because well, you doesn't pay your bills and, and your mummy and daddy can only look after you and your sister, or your partner, or business partner, can only look after you for, for so long. So it was time to, to change. And, and again, it's probably bad because I'm very 100% and like, it's all or nothing for me. And, and it, there was part of me that was going... I'm only 80% here now because maybe other people wanted to have babies or they were moving off or in the another direction. I thought, I'm not going to continue. I can't continue to do this because other things in my life are going to start falling short and I couldn't allow for that
0: to happen. And then, like, t- taking that yeah. kind of decision and building on from your granddad's past, and I mean, thank you for sharing that story with us because it <laughs> sounds like it was quite a like a profound moment for you as an individual in terms of internal conversations with yourself and reflecting and actually looking at the bigger picture in terms of family life and and life itself. And even with all that going on, you saying, okay, maybe I'm going 80 20 here or have to make my next decision. Was any part of you worried or scared that like you by stepping away from the game at that level that you wouldn't kind of have the hurl to hide behind anymore, you wouldn't have the pitch to escape to. Was that a worry for you in any way shape or form?
1: No, because I had just acquired like uh, maybe two years before that. I got another, bought another chip shop, and I knew as soon as I came away from the Kamogi field, all my energy and time is going to be just through into that. And I knew then I would really, really make up, really work. So I didn't. Have, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't. I knew it was the right time. I didn't want to have any regrets. I didn't want to hold on to it and and become somebody that wasn't a good teammate because that's what would have happened. So. I made the right decision at the right time for me and I knew that I had something else that I, I was going to throw all my time and attention into and that's what I did.
0: So talk to me about work life now then. like, So you make that decision and I know you mentioned your sister a couple of times there who maybe had been picking up some slack while you were pursuing the playing side of things and you were chasing that, um, that part of your life. So, so from that decision to now, kind of talk to me about how that's been for you.
1: Uh, well, it's been it's been very good and and it's also been very challenging. Uh, I suppose in the same regards as what sport is as well. Um, there's very challenging moments. Um, we have two fish and chip shops. And we we've had two fish and chip shops that didn't actually work. So I'm not saying you don't just put your hand or something and and just because it's it's good in one location, it's going to be good in the other. So we've had many many a hard time. Um, even though you go like COVID, COVID was probably our biggest um, thing to deal with. And, and to be able to adapt and do different things was, again, was Delora. She's, been, she's brilliant. And anything that I don't like doing, she, she'll pick up. And anything that she doesn't like doing, I'll do. So business is brilliant, but it's very, very difficult. And even uh, in the cost of living crisis now, and the way people's eating habits are changing and All of that—it's you're always adapting. You always have to change. You have to be ready for change, or you have to be able to be ready for whatever's coming down the line. You have to be ready for any financial difficulty you're coming into, and and you want to know. I think I thrive a wee bit on that as well. It's like it's a wee bit of a game where you're going, okay, right? I have to do something. If I start thinking negatively about it, it's gonna it is going to be negative, and so to be able to kind of keep in your mind keep positive about things no matter what because at the end of the day it's going to be okay and I think keep on reminding yourself it's going to be okay then it does eventually be okay even in the toughest of times even whenever you uh, you have no staff and, and you're doing all the eyes yourself it'll always be okay you'll always have somebody that'll come in and, and it's just about opening it up to the universe and, and letting it in as well I suppose and, and try your hardest to do that sometimes and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work but Most of the time you just have to remind yourself that it is going to be okay and you you can't die, like you're not going to, it's not going to kill you, it's not going to so, just get on with it and and take the hard times as much as you want to take the good times. And another thing my parents would say is never really think about the money, don't think about the money that you're going to get from the product or the service that you're going to give. If you're giving a good product or a good service, the money will follow and then I sort of kind of think of the money's nearly the easy part, do you know what I mean? So it's you have to just let everything go, and then the money will come in behind the service or whatever you're doing. Uh, if it's good and and you're doing it well or whatever, so it's it's challenging but really really good.
0: For sure, like, And like you've talked about there, like the the ups and downs of it all. And for anyone being an entrepreneur, like Pete, you, I always go back to people always say like, "How oh, must be great to be your own boss?" And you're like, "Well, it is, but also at times it isn't." Um, but was what drew you to, to that line of work and that business? Where did that kind of come from, the motivation, the idea to go down that path?
1: Um, well, there was an opportunity came up um, when we, I was 21 and Laura was 20 that we could buy a really uh, popular fish and chip shop in North Belfast that's been going since 1981. And whenever the opportunity came, we, we jumped at it because it's a really, really busy shop. Um, it's been there for a long time. It's an institution in North Belfast. Like Everybody knows Molly so we thought straight away Laura was like I'll definitely do it so she jumped into it I was in helping and sort of playing and being a professional camogie player that's what Buffy and Daddy say so whenever but as soon as I started interacting with customers or seeing people like coming in the same people nearly every day and the same people from the community uh, coming in with a wee box of chocolates for you it was just probably the interaction of the people first of all and then learning everything uh in the chip shop like we do our own potatoes every morning we prep everything ourselves so everything that went on in it i really enjoyed and and loved doing and it just grew from there and it was just funny it was good it was a good laugh it didn't feel like work to me because there was a lot of opportunities that i could have had working in an office setting or uh, working in a different uh, environment but it, it didn't really it didn't tick with me and as soon as i did that I just loved it. The same as Camogie, as soon as I did it, I loved it. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. And this is where I'll focus all my attention. And anything that I did before that, like working in the bars or uh, coaching or anything like that on, on summer schemes or whatever, it never really got me the way this did. And it was probably the interaction of people and being able to be face to face with people all day and have a bit of a joke with people and, And so many different people and a wide range of different people. And I just loved that.
0: And like the the good parts of it that you described there, Jane, and like getting that kind of that sense of reward and satisfaction from doing it. At what point then do you start challenging yourself of all we're going to? Because you mentioned there's multiple places now you have, right? You're not, it's not just one shop anymore.
1: So we went from one shop and then we opened one on the Falls Road. Had it for six years and... That was probably our first time where we thought you could just move this, you could just move this chip shop to any location and it'll be fine. It'll be, it'll be.
0: Like a copy and paste.
1: And it's not the case. So we had bought a building on the Falls Road facing the Culderland, opened it as a Mally's and like you, we struggled. So the amount of the work that we put, I put in and Laura put into the one in the Eldrum Road, you have to put the same amount of work in the, the other one. Otherwise it doesn't work or, or the shutter wouldn't even go up. But. It just didn't work. And we held on to it for maybe sixty eight years and it didn't work. And there was like so we just had to uh, learn a tough lesson there, whereas don't let ego hold on to things for you. So if my I, I would probably would have thought I'm not really e- egotistical, but in situations like that, you become people are gonna think I failed, people are gonna think even my sister, even my family, it and it's just how you let that go and it's difficult to do it, but once you do it, it's like okay, because the business is more important than my ego. So it was like whenever so we held on to the building and we then rented it out for something else. And for a good couple of years nothing really ever came or uh, we always knew where we wanted to go and that was in the Glen Gormley. Um and that's just like three miles from the Antrim Road. It's just up a one straight road in the Glen Gormley where it's like the second largest postcode in the north. So and everybody that grew up on the Elton Road went if the when they got a wee bit of money or the mite or whatever they went up the up to Glen Gormley. So our next location was wanting to be in Glen Gormley, but there was nothing for ages. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um Henderson's, uh who owned Spar, they were opening um a brand new flagship store in Glen Gormley. Absolutely three uh units along the side, post office, garage, uh butchers, everything in one shop. And um the guys went to John Dory's because they had loads of spots on their other locations and asked them if the day they want it. They came back and said they didn't. And we had had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, or weeks before that, with a guy who owned Henderson's, and he remembered about us and asked us that we want that store. So that's it. We were jumped at the chance because it was where we wanted to go, and that was in 2011. And that store's flying. It's still flying, and it's still brilliant. Then. Um, then we opened another one in Kennedy Center in West Belfast it's a in a food court again, that went for six years, seven years, and it um it, it just the food court was logistically it wasn't very the way that its it's set up isn't very good. so you were with Burger King and all the rest of it, but there was only one way up the stairs and one way like if the lift was broke. Then there was no wee old women who most of the people coming into the Kennedy Centre at that time would have had a trolley and needed a um esc- like needed the lift to get upstairs, so it didn't really work out either. But we'd already put in plan. We didn't fall for the same thing we were fell for the last the last time where you're stuck with the building or anything like that. So we've always learned along the way, and now we have two two cracking chip shops, and we're also in business with a guy called Kieran Kelly, who and so it's pizza guys. So during the pandemic we changed our coffee shop restaurant into a pizza guys and I think it was a it was a, a bold move but we had to adapt and we seen an opportunity before a lot of other people did and turned it into a, a pizza place and it's now the highest rated uh, restaurant in the north of Ireland for and like all takeaways uh, reviewed on Just Eat so we're sitting at the very, very top, and we made the right decision because we're we're doing probably five times the amount of money that we were doing with Sylvester's, which was an absolutely brilliant coffee shop restaurant. But COVID just just killed it, so we moved on to that, and now that's grown, and and we'll probably take on more of those as well.
0: Wow, I feel like just as like as I'm listening to you there, like I know when people say, "Oh, this person got the business; they've done this, done that," and everyone's like, "Oh, great person, that's brilliant, well done." But I feel like what jumps out as you're talking there, Jane. is just like there. Suppose the resilience first of all, but also then the adaptability, and then the courage to kind of when you spot a thing to kind of keep taking your shot almost. No, like no pun intended. Go back to your comogi days. That like I feel like it would have been easy, maybe. When that second shop you open up and it doesn't work out after six years or so when you leave it it would be easy to internalise that and kind of like make you afraid to go again or to kind of reload or push it again but it sounds like that's something that you you were comfortable doing was it?
1: Uh, I th- yeah if we were I think it's like if you don't take the shot, then you're never going to know what happened and if you let fear you can let fear hold you back for lots of things and at the end of the day, like we're only living one life. We only have it's not a dress rehearsal. Everybody knows this, but I think people are now starting to live a wee bit more bad instead of letting it hold them back. Where I kind of get a wee feeling within inside me if I know something's a really good idea. Now we've turned loads of stuff down because it just didn't feel right for us. Um but if you don't have a dig at it, then you never gonna know. And I think, yes, you might lose some money along the way and you might lose a wee bit. But if you don't lose a friendship, you keep because it's all about people. So you gotta keep the people around you. You gotta keep wee bit positive, and you just have take the shots when they're there, and, and like, never miss an opportunity because there's so many opportunities out there that I've I've missed. And even getting a wee bit older, like I don't want to miss any opportunities. I want to take all the opportunities that's, that's thrown my way because again, going back to whenever you're playing Kamogi, like this doesn't you don't be in an all Ireland final every day. You, whenever you're in an all, iron final, you're there's only thirty of you that day is going to be in that on on that pitch at any one time. So taking the taking the shot uh, is is good to do and not to let fear hold you back because fear can hold you back from everything and also to let your ego go because if I hadn't let my ego go even on that first shot in the Falls Road, I could have kept thinking my daddy Laura was laughing at me or um, everybody thinks I'm a fit, Just know what, bite your tongue at all of it and just. Mm, tunnel vision and just say it doesn't matter if you're embarrassed it doesn't matter just get on with it because don't let it hold you back and I tried my best to do that
0: Yeah I think that's such an important like and such a valuable life lesson and, and thank you for sharing it because like one of the things we've been doing in these conversations is just trying to capture as broad walks of life and people from different backgrounds be it and like from business sport education whatever it may be and it's like those life lessons we able to share them are just so valuable um one of the one of the things I was thinking about while I was listening to you there, and you mentioned earlier that like you know you jump straight from intercounty Kogi and a kind of a, the elite level of Kogi straight into the business, and it sounds like you almost like you replaced one with the other in terms of of energy and drive and commitment. Um, did you ever run into problems with like your energy and your self care or and managing to be able to kind of be go go go? Like, were you someone that was able to sit still? Did you ever have to sit still?
1: No. I never wanted to sit still, so if I, as soon as I get up in the morning, I was happy enough to, to get out of the house. Especially whenever I lived on my own, I was like, have a nice big house, um, could just anybody normal would probably go well. Have a wee sit in the house today, have a wee cup of tea, and then eat breakfast in the house. So I was up and out straight away. It didn't matter if I didn't even have us anything planned. It was like get into the car, go and get your coffee. And if it's Sylvester's or or Manny's that you go to first, or even go and see your mummy and daddy or whatever, I was jo- or go to the gym. I was out of the house straight away. It's only now, um, that I'm a wee bit older and that I've met Nicky that I'm actually content. And now I I I would have went to work at seven in the morning and not came home f- till half eleven at night, and I was happy to do that. And whenever I crashed, I didn't crash that often, but whenever I crashed, I crashed with a migraine or. And that was the only time that I would have sat down or, and again, I never liked watching TV or anything like that. But now I believe that it's because I wasn't content with me or or like you have to sit down, you have to think about, okay, right, well, um, like what's this relationship or is there somebody out there to love or to think about even being flippant gay. So I didn't want to think about any of that. I was just happy enough. Okay, I have a focus, come okay. I have another focus here my business. And I was happy and didn't even realise that I was unhappy in anything else because I was so in that, if you know what I mean. So now I'm completely happy to sit down and love not being in work at seven o'clock at night, love being in the house at five, love sitting down to watch the TV. Um, We nieces and nephews and Laura, my sister, lives next door. So they come in every night and I actually love being in the house that I've built. And now it's not just a house now, it's, it's actually a home because... I'm happy to be in it and but that all boils down to being content with me really really content that's not just like happy with my camogie life or happy with my business life that is being happy with actually who Jane Addams is and 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 that's really what I'm happy enough to do that now and never was.
0: Yeah and like like saying like, be, like being comfortable with who Jane Jane Adams is and like I was reading an interview you did or remember it was I was reading an interview that you did and like one of the lines I picked out of it was you said that like I was gay and I never wanted to accept it and I was just kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about a bit more about that because I suppose it sounds like in one way is like that not being able to accept that or willing to accept at the time kind of drove you to just head first into those com- like camogie, into business. So I kind of, I suppose what did you mean by that and then kind of when and how does that start to change?
1: Okay, so... Whenever I, again, had a conversation with my daddy and said, oh, I didn't really accept it. And he says, you did? And I said, okay, I, all right, I actually did accept it. So I accepted it, but I wasn't happy with it. And I think that's, like, it's it's so much different. So I, whenever I was younger, maybe 19, 20, or it was probably about 23 before I, I accepted it. So I accepted it, but I wasn't happy with it. And even at a wedding the other day, I was there was a guy there and he was like, but... Everybody knew, and I was like, I know, everybody knew. And he said, and there was younger kids coming up and they looked up to you, and I said, yes, I know, and I knew anybody looking at me probably thought I was okay with it, but I really wasn't. And I suppose, and that, because he didn't even know, he was like, what do you mean? Like, you definitely accept, you knew, and everybody else knew, and I said, yes, but I didn't like it. I wasn't, whenever I was going home and looking at the real Jane Adams in the mirror, I didn't want to be gay. I wasn't happy about it. I thought... Um, I'm never going to be with somebody that, uh, like, I really love. I could never envisage myself walking down the aisle with anybody and never mind getting married. I just couldn't. Now, I was in relationships and whatever, but and I would never deny them. I was always so forward-facing. Anybody looking at me probably thought, she's out there and she's okay about it, but I really wasn't, and, and I didn't I didn't love the fact that I was. But now it's completely different because... Um, I've let that go. I remember the first time that I met Nikki and I'm Nikki's only first partner and um, and now we're married. So she was like, I don't understand. Why why do you think that there's a problem? If anybody has a problem, it's their problem. Whenever she said it, I was like, actually right enough. But I think it's really down to that I was able to then let that go and I'm completely able to give my love to somebody and then I was able to receive that back and that's like massive. So for young kids growing up and looking up to me, I never wanted them to know that I was uncomfortable with it because I knew they were coming behind me and I I never wanted to deny it in case like they thought this isn't okay or this is is shameful or it's not. So I always made it portrayed that, oh, this is okay. And if somebody asked me whenever I got a wee bit older, I would have said, yeah, a hundred percent and I'm fine with it. But deep down and said I was crying about it I didn't, I, I didn't like it because I never thought I was going to be truly happy and that's probably what made me feel that way
0: Yeah so like just as a kind of and, and thank you for sharing all that Jane like just like as I'm kind of playing it back in my head like there kind of saying okay maybe you did accept it but you weren't happy about it like so one of the things just want to make sure I kind of pick it up and for anyone listening was like you were kind of worried about the future version of yourself you weren't able to see that playing out how you how you wanted, and then was there, that's one part of it, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I thought that I was I was never going to be able to love somebody um, the way like heterosexual couples love each other. I was never ever going to feel that love, and and I was never ever going to be able to give that love. And it's completely untrue. That is totally the opposite of of what um, and I think that's what real love is. It's like it's the unconditional love. Now, there's nobody has ever been bad to me or, or any of my teammates or anything have said anything maybe behind your back or whatever but that's all changing and that's just all about the educa- educating people and all the rest of it about um about it but for I just didn't really think that I could give like heterosexual couple love I just didn't believe that it was I didn't believe that it was out there I also thought that because um, not many people talked about it I probably just thought that the pool of people is very, very small and harsh people gonna know how am I gonna feel attracted to somebody, or how's people gonna know in the big out in the big world that I'm gay? Because if I don't wanna to go to gay bars, is that the only place that I'm gonna find somebody? Is that so I think you kinda go into your head and think it's so, so small and make it a lot smaller. The pool is smaller than what it actually is, and it's not even like that at all. And I suppose like whenever people look at me, looked at me, I'm glad that it affected it. I'm glad that I, I let on, that I was okay about it because there is so many young people and there and now you, you know the people who are looking up to you thinking, it's all right, for, it's okay to be gay. And I wanted them to think that and wanted them to, to know that I was comfortable with it, which I wasn't and whatever, but it's really down to I didn't believe that I could love somebody or they could love me back as much as what you should be able to.
0: And then how... How how does that change then, Jane? As you move forward, because I feel like you know, like I think one of the things that's often I I think we talked about to Ashley Maher on the podcast about this stuff too, like about this too, is that like often we either watching TV shows or movies, or whatever they make, like the the coming out moment. There's like this big magical thing, and it's like oh. Sunshine's going to come in through the, re- the window, rainbows over the house, isn't it all great? Like, fair play to you. But, like, I think what you're also getting at here throughout the conversation is there's just multiple steps to this journey, and hmm. your journey's your journey, and it's same, it'll be different to someone else's, and it'll be different to someone else's. But it's just, it is a journey with steps. Um, and I, I, I suppose it's, I do want to acknowledge that because, especially if you're younger people listening or, or just whoever is listening, just, it's it just sometimes it's thrown into conversations. Oh, when did you come out? Great, fair play to you, you're super, you know? And I'm mean, picking that up right there, Jay, that like, yeah, like your family and friends knew you were, you were like, kind of been open about it. You'd accepted it. But like the happiness and find the life you want takes, it, it takes patience and also takes courage to kind of keep going forward.
1: Yeah. And I probably confuse that with, um, with that feeling with, uh, about being gay, but it's not really, a, if you're not happy in any, in any relationship, like, I probably find myself now very lucky that I really do love somebody and that I'm willing to accept the love that I'm getting. I made that, but in my head I thought that was just because I was gay, that's the way it was. But I, I suppose there's loads of people that that are also feeling the exact same, but people did accept it and people. And there's never been for me any big coming out moment or anything. I used to say to my mummy and daddy, um, my friend's staying here and they'd be like, right, okay. And like So I'd have a girl and she was a friend and I was like, so then when I was maybe 23 my mom and my mommy or daddy said to me, is this just your friend again? And I was like, yeah. So like, don't ask me any questions. So it was never any day that I said, oh, but had the big rainbows or anything like that. I was like, uh, or I had to say, um, I was with somebody for a very long time and then uh, I was then, had a couple of other friends and stuff. So I never really had that moment where I said, I think I feel that I need to give it, a, get it out there. And even whenever I was playing camogie, there was probably times where uh, there was nobody had came out and there was things. But I didn't really, I didn't want all the attention to be on me if I had a said, oh, that's me. But I probably should have. But I just thought that, well, everybody knows anyway. So no need for me to come out and say, well, this is what it is. But now looking back, maybe I should have, maybe I think, because anybody that has, has been a trailblazer and has been absolutely amazing. And it makes it a lot easier for older people that are are gay now and younger people coming behind them. It makes him, it opens up the conversation that this is completely and utterly normal. This is not, there's nothing wrong with this and the only person that made, had anything, any problem with it was me, nobody else.
0: he's oh, It's such an amazing point and like, yes, for sure, like there's, has been trailblazers but also like, you, you are still, so, like you were a trailblazer in your own way, in your own community, in your own club as people kind of mention it to you, you know, and like, everyone again on their own journey not everyone has to step up and kind of make noise about it or just because you're an athlete doesn't mean you have to make the big kind of if it is the immediate peers ever like everyone gets to do this at their own way and at their own at their own pace and that's the same goes with people on mental health journey same goes with people in it's just it's like people you get to choose how and if when you want to tell your story you know and I'm really appreciative that you've, you've shared it today and I know in terms of you've talked about like learning to love yourself and being in a better place right now, and I'm right, so you yourself and Nikki went to Las Vegas to get married initially. Did you do that?
1: <laughs> we did, yeah. When was that? Five years ago, we went, uh, we knew what we were going to do so. We were going to a boxing match and we were going to see the Triple G and Canelo fight in Vegas, so we knew. We were going to that, and then we both said, sure, "We'll get married." We'll we get married, and we don't even get out with each other maybe nine months, and which we, But so, well, we both knew it was just like we're going to get married, and then when we came home, we didn't tell anybody. So Nikki's daughter is she's now twenty, but at the time she was fifteen, and we knew that I wanted to tell my three sisters, and Nikki wanted to tell Jada, uh, which sort my wee stepdaughter, and. But Jada had to be the first person to, to be told. And I kept this secret from my sisters and I don't keep secrets from my sisters. So it took like from September to Christmas. We, myself, Nikki and Jada went to New York and on last day when we were waiting to go to the airport, we said, well, we'll tell her now, well, we'll tell her now. So we thought it was a couple of days before Christmas, a couple of days before her birthday. We were like, by the way, Jada, when we were in Las Vegas in September, we got married and we didn't know what our reaction was going to be. So, it was, and she went, I thought I wanted to do it here. I wanted to do it in Belfast. We were like, okay, so she knows this is this is complete she's okay with this. So she never once batted an eyelid. She never and before be fair, I would never have been able to go get it go with Nikki at all if it hadn't have been if Jada hadn't liked me or a thing because she's number one. She was fifteen. She she accepted me straight away. We're all very, very good friends. We all live together, have done from the moment and day that we met and, and her acceptance of me and her mummy. Again, being our mummy's first uh, girlfriend um, has been brilliant, but that's a testament to kids because kids don't think there's anything wrong with it anyway. So, um, again, she probably taught me a lesson there where she's like, "Aunt, like, yeah, big deal." Even my, my ki- our kids next door, who's we then got married um, in the merchant, where my daddy walked me down the aisle and Nikki's daddy walked her down the aisle, and it was just after COVID. It was actually kind of during COVID, but we changed the four times. But we wanted both more in our wedding dresses and stuff. And our kids were like, "Why not get married in the chapel?" So there is nothing like everybody. Everybody's mindset and, uh, mindset's changed, and it's all about the education around it and, and talking about it. And and there's not like it's just absolutely normal. So for Jada, I was very thankful that she just well. Right, okay. I think she actually went, I have loads more to do here. So can you stop
0: topic
1: Great, <laughs> <laughs> like, right, okay?
0: I like you mentioned that like the mindset of young people and kind of the, the acceptance and like the compassion of the next generation coming through seems to be wider and better. And like obviously the same sex marriage like equality, like you're able to then go have that moment you just described because of the progress of the progress of that. As well as what do you think is kind of like next in terms of LGBTQ plus kind of activism, rights, kind of in terms of Irish society on the island of Ireland? Like what's next in terms of progressing that and moving things on, Jane, in your opinion?
1: Um, again, I, there's obviously going to be loads of people out there that that think differently from what I think. Um, and I think it all really revolves around the educating of it. Um, Like, if we don't talk about it and if if I don't hear your objections to things, then I don't know if I need to change things. And I think conversation and debate, whether it be right or wrong, I think there's a place for it. And I think that unless we speak more about things, unless we educate each other, it's even like racism, like unless it's talked about, unless it's spoke about, then I'm not going to know who's annoying about what I think or whatever. And there might be some people that think, oh, you can't really say anything these days, but hold on a wee second. It's... You have to think about the person as is, is feeling the way that they're feeling. So we're all human. We all have we all have our thoughts. We all have whether they're you may think they're right or I may think they're wrong. It doesn't really matter. We're entitled and this is the, the beauty about the democracy um these days and, and being allowed to talk about things is nobody's really wrong in anything. It may be an opinion, it may be um the wrong opinion in some cases, but to be honest, we're all human, we need to be able to talk about these things and feel that we're allowed to talk about them without being shut down. Otherwise, you're going to create a society where you're not allowed to say anything or or you're you're saying too much. I think everybody is intending to have that place where um, we're able to bring it on and without conversation, without debate. Uh, new rules can't come into play or new people can't come in if it's not spoken about. Do you know what I mean? So I think educating people, like even my aunt would be, one of my aunts would say, um, uh, oh, I, I'm okay about you being gay as years ago. I was like, thanks very much. She was being really nice, but it's just it's just the language. So I think we'll have to be very sensitive with a lot of people and I think we'll have, and also to ourselves. So because you have a thought in your head, why not talk about it? Why not speak about it? if you If you feel a certain way, then you should be able to talk about it and you should be able to put your opinion forward without it being... No, that's not right, or that's not right, because we do live in a democratic society, and unless things are opened up, I think you could actually start shutting stuff down. And 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 all it is is conversation and debate at the at the minute, and educating people.
0: Yeah, I know. I think, and as you're talking there, I, I went back to one of the the episode we did with Ashley Maher as well. Like she said something that really stuck at me when we chatted about like that people like we actually, we actively need to unlearn some things with like our language and things. Like, and she'll talk about be a teammates or friends, like we'll, we'll say things without even kind of meaning it or even before realizing it's coming out. But then it is been able to catch that or someone call you on that to actively unlearn it and correct it. And it always just stuck with me as something that was really kind of simple. Um, And part of that is the conversation of, hey, if someone says something, you will say, hey, actually, can I just say like something to you about that or to check you on that? Like, and kind of being comfortable in a little bit of an uncomfortable dialogue at times. Um, do you know what I'm trying to say?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you. I think you're right. If somebody like my aunt saying that to me, it was probably I was like, right, okay. And then, but the next, if she had to say it to me, like any like now, I would say that's not really the way you say it. And maybe and then I know it t- may take time to explain to her, but she's. She was all ears. She, she's not wanting to cause anybody anything. And you want to know what? For her next conversation, talking to somebody about something else, then exactly what I have said, like unlearn something. There's lots of stuff that I need to unlearn and see whenever we're talking about like um, LGBTQ+. Like, I don't know enough about it for me to be like criticising and I don't know enough about it. So yes, I want to learn more about it because at the end of the day, like you keep on going back to, we're all humans we're not, we're not putting this earth that we'll want to we'll harm anybody or we'll want to thing. So maybe just have a wee bit of a, an ear that they can, can listen and understand and be sensitive. But also to say as well, if you don't like something, they'll also be able to say, that's not really the way that it is or that's not what I think. So I think there is a wee bit of unlearning, especially around like racism as well. I think even sometimes people's, people's language, is like unless they're pulled up about it, they might not ever know. They may just be speaking, and and sometimes been in a wrong crowd or, or with the wrong people, and say the wrong thing, and then all hell breaks loose. Whereas if if an opportunity comes up and you think it's like wrong, you say this and that, and not really too sure. And this is the reason why. Um, then I think it is all unlearning, relearning, and educating others.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I think like it's it's such an important point because it carries across to so many different topics. You know. Um. Like it really like uh, sometimes you'll, when you get two like two people on a different sides of a disagreement or an argument or a viewpoint, it's like you can get into that awkward tension of I'm not going to say anything because I might like annoy that person or I might trigger a response from over there. But it's just, it's kind of been trying to get more comfortable in kind of the little sticky middle gritty bit. Um, and like to that point, I think were you part of a group a couple of years ago that like wrote to the Taoiseach regarding United Ireland and kind of and kind of. I think you got a list of Antrim Gales behind it in terms of a citizen's assembly. Did I read that correct?
1: Yes, you did. Uh, it's kind
0: of what What was the motivation to do that, Jane? I suppose, and to the same kind of point, like, did you get any engagement or kind of blowback with the same kind of, I think it's just a nice same thing in a different way as, uh, if, as we're talking about it. Uh,
1: yes, of course. But as, again, this is so... Back in 2019, myself and Paddy Cunningham, uh, we'd be good good enough friends. we talk business, talk sport, and I did a couple of anthem things with him, like dancing with the team and all the rest of it. So I'd know Paddy quite well, and he he, he goes to the same gym that I go to and looks after me and whatever, because he works for them. So us two talk all the time, regularly about a lot of different things, and uh, we came up with the debate that is on everybody's tongues at some point their time that, and that is a united Ireland. And we thought, well, we're within the GAA. We're both members of the GAA. What, what can we do to, to like have our voice heard? So we came up with a, a thing that instead of going down the route where we wanted to ask GAA clubs or anybody to endorse this letter that we wrote to the tea shop that, had, that has a couple of asks on it, and one of the asks is that um, did the Irish government to take the lead on establishing an All Ireland Citizens Assembly, so we wanted to write that, and then we wanted to gain a lot of signatures to it. So the way we did it was we wanted to go gale on gale. and the reason for gale on gale is because in amongst the GAA club, right, we're we're smack, we're every single community right through to all thirty-two counties of Ireland, we're the heart of the community in most in most cases, and and also uh, very sensitive to other people around us. And I think Jarlath Burns had said that. The GAA would be able to show sensitivity and show our unionists, our unionist friends, or the PLU community that that it's not as bad. It's not bad the way you think it is. And the beauty about the GAA that me and Paddy thought was that it's it's made up of many different political persuasions. There's not just there's not somebody that supports Sinn Fein and all Sinn Fein. It's Sinn Fein alliance. It's thing. There's different ethnicities. There's um. There's so there's LGBTQ, so I think the GAA is best in pla- a really good place to talk about this. And um, so what we did was we went gale on gale. So I didn't want to ask any chairman of any club to say right, I'm endorsing this uh, on behalf of our club. You had to go to the person and uh, or you had to ask a person what is your take on this. So we got to it and we got um then we got like a couple other people involved like Sambo McNaughton. And we start did like a starting fifteen and we got it around Antrim and we got three thousand people to sign it straight away. Um there's strength in unity, so there's no point in us having all the Ulster teams all signing up for this. We needed to get into the South because if we're sent the letter to the tea shop at the time it was me Hall Martin, probably won't respond to this because there's only people in Ulster that's doing it. So we're just chipping away, chipping away. So now we actually have we have a, a website and stuff set up called Gales Le Keela. Um, we believe that there's strength in unity and uh, it's, everybody's talking about it anyway. Um, and we just want to push forward and we now are going to send a, a new letter to uh, Leo Faradkar, um with many new endorsements and many new people have that, that Like we have Aidan O'Shea, Aisling Thompson, um, a lot of people. And this isn't the, the make, I just want a United Ireland. I would have always like, yes, I want a United Ireland. That's my ultimate goal. Um, a Republican who wants a United Ireland, but my stance has changed over the years. I don't want a United Ireland with just 50 plus one. I have a lot of friends that it doesn't matter now to me if you're a Catholic or a Protestant, and it has never really um gone way back years where you didn't really meet up with Protestants or anything. It probably would have then, but it's completely different now. I, like, everybody has to be on board, and you know what? This is the same thing that we talked about there a wee second ago. Unless we're talking about it, I don't know what your problems are or, and you don't know what mine are. This is about a debate. This isn't like we want the United Ireland, we want it tomorrow. It has to be done right. It has to be, and I'm not even getting into the political nitty, nitty gritty of um, education or infrastructure or anything like that because all them things have to be spoken about. And anybody that's signed this letter um, all believe that. And people say it is politics Politics and sports shouldn't go shouldn't go together or they should keep politics out of sport and all the rest of it again the look at the amount of people that um that that are in the ga community and not only that it's i think it's the government's irish government's um thing that they have to look after the rights of all citizens right across right across the board and and i'm actually really enjoying being part of it um I like talking about it now. Years ago you would never have I never would have thought that there would have been a United Island. And even when I was in Kenya and hadn't having a few chats with different people from the south, you don't really know what people are thinking. And this is kinda of talking to um different people that I was with. They were like, we just don't know. Like we just need to talk about it. Like we just don't know. And it's a wee bit like you would have thought, uh, ah, well, you're down south, they don't really care. That people do. And I was very, very um surprised and genuinely with the response and again I'm happy to listen to why people don't think it's a good idea and why people do think it's a good idea but for me a united Ireland is what I want and I've always felt part of a 32 county Ireland anyway within the GAA so I don't see but I also know that our unionist uh, friends and families also need to feel okay about it and if they don't feel okay about it and they feel like Jarlith Byrne said the other day that feel under siege well It's about breaking down those barriers to show people that the GAA isn't a political group. The GAA don't make big decisions on these types of um, rulings or whatever. So it's up to us to have the conversations to make people believe that it's okay and, and we're not trying to take over the world or we're not trying to, we're just trying to get our country. We're just trying to take away partition that I believe should be taken away.
0: No, it's um, it's a couple of years already on the go and it sounds like it's going to keep evolving and like there's no magic solution here. You're kind of getting at like it's one conversation at a time and kind of trying to get momentum and join up dots in terms of smaller conversations to to bring it to what's ultimately, I think, what your hope from what you're saying there is a bigger conversation then, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it's, we're only a small part, like, but we're talking about it anyway and, and, and why not? Why not within the GAM, why not in the clubs speak about it anyway? Because there's other people like Ireland's future and other people pushing for a citizens' assembly anyway. So this is just another wee branch of people that are talking about it and coming from a different perspective. So all these different perspectives is is all good. And that's, again, going back to debate and conversation. If the debate and the conversation... It's never going to happen. Uh, It's never going to be a better Ireland or if the conversations aren't happening... People these days are entitled to talk about what they want and what they don't want. And that goes right across the board. That goes for, for nationalists, Republicans, from people from the PLU communities. They have an entitlement to talk about it as well. They can tell us why they want it and why they don't want it. And hopefully there's a middle ground there where we can come to um and I'll, like come to some an agreement that we all want a better Ireland. And and if that is and genuinely that's that's now my thinking. I want a better Ireland. I want. I I do believe that I'm an Irish citizen, and I want to show other people that it's not that bad. Like, don't be holding on to the past. The Good Friday Agreement's coming up 25 years um, in April, or there, and, and like, it's not the way it used to be. It is not the heart. You're not walking. You're not afraid. I'm not watching TV now or looking up teletext if my mummy and daddy's out and not had not come home yet. Has there been a bomb or has there been a shooting? My, we're not. You're not walking out into the. They get into the car and worried that there might be a bomb down the street or heading to school. So I'm not worried about that kind of thing anymore. I was 13, 14 whenever that was happening. I hated that time. I couldn't believe it when the Good Friday Agreement came along that what there's going to be, there's not going, there's going to be doesn't have to be a ceasefire anymore because it was you were going from ceasefire to ceasefire that you knew and then you'd have been in the house and you'd have heard shots and you were like that's a ceasefire broke, I'm only a kid, never that kind of stuff's that I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew that it wasn't good, so, and to be honest, like, people from working class communities, they're not fighting against each other, we live, we live right close to each other, it's like, we're all together in this, we all want the same thing, we all want a better life, we all want to make a few quid whenever we're going to work, we all want to be able to be in jobs, we want better education, and and whatever way the better education and them systems can work, then we need to be telling people and being sensitive towards it and telling them and properly telling them, like, not tell lies. This is better for you. This can be better. And you are also intending to tell me what is better and let's come to a compromise. Like, I'm not going to do it right now, but again, it's all about talking and it's all about um, having an ear and, and listening.
0: Yeah, but- Good, good luck with that body of work, Jane, and I'm moving it forward, and like, I words are jumping out to me, like compromise and middle ground, and it's complex, and it's hard, and it's challenging, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've had days or conversations where you you come way energized and upbeat, and then you'll have the same one, the other end, you'll come away shaking your head, or like, what are we doing, or how is this all going to be better, but th- those kind of memories you alluded to there, Jane, as like as a kid, I know you're only a young teenager and stuff, but like... Are, like they obviously are in your memory in terms of acknowledging them and like to drive, are are they part of the reason that's driving you forward with that body of work and kind of trying to create a change that you feel will be a better Ireland?
1: Yes, definitely. I think people um, very quickly forget how bad it was and um, like it really, like people down isn't okay. People down in any community is not okay. People fighting and for for things that are going on, isn't that okay? So whenever I think anybody that's wanting the to, to go back even in the violence or anything didn't really live in the days when it was really bad anyway, because you couldn't want to go back to that. It's just it's absolutely mad that you would want to. Um so like he, yes, my yes, memory daddy sheltered all of us from it and we did. But you always knew like we we live I came from Twinbrook. Um we lived close to the Falls Road. I live in West Belfast. So there's stuff going on, even though you're very, very sheltered from it. You, you know that it's going on. I went to St Louise's and there would be times where we guards would be getting called out of school because their daddy was shot or that there was a bomb or loads of different things that just shouldn't be happening to young kids. So no matter what anybody says, going back to them days is absolutely no, no, no for me. It's you keep moving forward. And uh, from the Good Friday Agreement happened, I've seen a lot of hope. Um, I've seen a lot of people getting better jobs, I've seen the education getting better. Um, I've seen people not being afraid to go to universities in Col and and in Jordanstown or wherever that where people might not have wanted to go because they came from a certain community. That doesn't happen anymore. So anybody is thinking it was better then, it certainly, certainly wasn't. It's so much better now and, and like I I'm a product of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm very hopeful and, and believe that there will be a compromise and there will be a compromise that everybody can be happy and everybody can live in a shared better island and I think that'll happen.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, thank you for sharing like that even for myself just listening for that insight and perspective. Um, it's really, really, it, it's it's really, really inspiring and it's really, really like helpful to hear um, what it's like, you know, on the ground and then, because we can all sit at home on our couches and look up at the roof and say, I wish for this or I wish for that. Um, but but definitely the best look is you can continue that body of work and then. What well, I was going to finish with you talking to you Jane about is I know you mentioned Kenya there so you went to Africa just before Christmas as part of the Warriors for Humanity group which was frankly doesn't know like a group of I think it was fifty intercounty players went to went there to it was to plant trees so. Tell us uh, I, that's probably a bad explanation for me. I'll I'll, I'll pass it over to you and tell you, tell tell us a little more about. I suppose, what made, what motivated you to go, Jane? And then kind of just kind of what you learned from that trip and kind of what you took away from that trip.
1: Uh, whenever I was going, I was told it was going to be life-changing. and You'll never, you'll not come back the same person. And I kind of thought, it'll happen for a wee while and, and it doesn't really, but it really, really does change um, change all your thinking. Um, whenever I was asked, would I go? I jumped at the chance of seeing it again. You know, right, this is an opportunity. Take it. Um, you had to raise £10,000. Again, I thought, okay, don't think, just play the money game. I know I'll be able to get the money. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about the money. You will get the money, and I did. I raised eighteen and a half thousand pound, and I was able. So a lot of people supported me, and I knew that they would have. Um, so we went the we went the Nairobi, and it was uh, fifty players, uh, all uh, Gaelic football ladies Gaelic football, Camogie and hurling, and we played played two inter-county games in Nairobi in front of. A stadium of, of uh, kids. Um, after it was the first ever, so we made history while we were there. And Alan Kearns, it's his idea. Uh, it was a brilliant idea, and we, we were sponsored by McKeever Sports, so we had two new, lovely new sets of jerseys that we were able to play in in the game with. Um, after the game, we were able to play with lots of kids, so we were able we brought hurdles and balls and everything over with us, so that we could interact with uh, all the kids after. So we did that. Um then the real work started. After that we drove to the next day we went to Lundy I think it was. And we were then we were there solely to do planting the trees. So um we were there to do that and we had raised enough money to, to plant the million trees, which is unbelievable and the amount of players that reached their target and blew that blew it away it has something to be said about those players or special kind of people. Uh we were able to go and um see where self help Africa and brighter communities actually we're planting these trees and I, I was thinking wait, what's the trees going to actually do for the people on the ground? Well this is where you really saw what happened so you were able to see um, in a certain area then the, they planted nut trees or they planted the food trees or shelter trees or whatever so each different area had somewhere where they, they were planting the tree that that was good for that area so people then could grow those trees and then have Make money out of it. They were able to take the tree, like take the product off the tree and be able to sell it on. Uh, We were able to see firsthand uh, all the wee um, farms and stuff that both uh, Self Help Africa and brighter communities look after. And right down to uh, the the ladies who ran the farms, like very, very small wee farms, but they were able to then uh, help them and educate them and then how to teach other people in the local communities. They start up their we farm and the thing. So they're really, really, really pushing people to, to take all this information that they're given and all the wee classes that they're given and really help themselves. Well, they went to a place um, that had had been in a drought for the last four years. And even getting out of the bus, you're you're like, I think I was a bit stunned some of the days. I was getting out and not really talking, just having a wee nosy around, looking around see what was going on. People's livestock were dying. They didn't have any water. You could have had to walk 10 kilometres before they got water. And like it just really opened your eyes and just being able to see where your money that you'd raised was going to was unbelievable. But we went to a school one time, uh, one day, and there was like two or 3,000 kids there. And in all the classrooms, very, very small wee classrooms, but in those classrooms, Self-Help Africa were, were doing classes. And the classes were on... Um, like period products are like really stuff that you don't even think about. Like I'm sitting, standing, listening to a, a girl uh, showing boys and girls how to make their own period products because they didn't have the money to buy it. So see whenever the, the type of work that they're doing, that they're educating people on how to look after themselves, how to, how to be hygienic and then also how to, how to build a life for yourself and how to uh, make a wee bit of money so that your your family can survive. It's really, really eye-opening. And um, I think the way that the uh, Allen Warriors for Humanity, the GPA, Self-Help Africa and Brighter Communities, the way they pulled that trip together and with the people that they pulled together on that trip was really, really, truly unbelievable. And I'm so glad that I didn't miss it because it did humble me and it showed me that it's not just about, like, you get out there and there's money and you're throwing the money. This money is directed into the right places and it's educating Again, okay, it goes back to educating people and, and showing people h- how to actually come out of this and, and not being reactive, to be proactive and, and not really to be firefighting anymore or living in a, a situation where all you can do is be reactive. It's like um being able to cut out the reactive and be proactive and how you make your life better. And I think that was what that trip did.
0: Yeah, wow. It sounds like, excuse me, it sounds like it was such an incredible... um just a group effort and just a, like an experience and as you said it like as well as the yes there's the fundraising to give but also the empowerment and the education and like actually trying to help people in a lasting way rather than just a quick solution it's just really really inspiring I think to get like 50 intercounty players from all over Ireland as you said earlier like um just to come together like that and to play a game there and to have to sp- have that kind of that spectacle for kids but also then to really get proper insights into communities and to uh and to people and I mean what was it like the, the couple of days when you come home from a trip like that like what's the readjustment back to to Jane Adams world and on, on Earth like after an experience like that
1: oh whenever you're coming back you're you're happy you're happy to come home um but you're also a bit sad that that you're leaving because it was such an incredible experience like we had loads of fun as well even in the and terrible you knew the terrible situations and knew your terrible surroundings everybody that was there um that you met met you with a smile or met you with a dance so whenever you were coming home you're, you're kind of thinking like hey, that was so incredible you're looking forward to getting home and all the rest of it but it does take a wee bit of time to adjust back into your normal life um and not be like looking at looking at people my sister said oh, i'd love to take the kids there and show them i was like. You couldn't. That would be so terrible to, be, to do that. It's not. It's not just about teaching a kid a lesson. Like it's like it's just incredible. But whenever you're coming back, you're like you're thinking, okay, you have to get back and you have to kind of. win ween- me being me, I was straight into working and and firefighting again with with work. And again, I have to then give me a wee bit of. Um, pause for thought, just think, hold on, stop being so reactive. You need to be proactive and not living in it. Because sometimes I create living in a reactive situation where I might think I like not having sta- staff are coming in, I'll do it, staff or anything. Think about the solution. So I think it really shows you how to think about a solution and not just to be living in the moment. Which was, and getting back in the work was really good, but you don't stop thinking about it. Like it. It's always in the back of your mind and especially for those next few weeks you're you're definitely thinking about it and what else can I do um who else can I talk to that would like to do this again because it was such not just for uh raising the money but like you said it's so important for a, for somebody to be able to get the opportunity to do that so now my thought is who would love to do that and I don't think there's going to be any trouble um for Alan to get whoever he wants that to, to go on this next trip because I think it, it was so successful and Every person on that trip, I have to say, was a special, special, special person, and and I wanted to be there. And I think that that's the main the main thing there that everybody wanted to be there, and everybody was happy to spend their time and effort, energy, and money that they've been given from their their good sponsors and make it for good use.
0: No, congratulations on all that, both your individual fundraising and the the collective team effort there, and as you said, spending time there. I just want to thank you for spending time with me today, having this conversation to to press pause. And I suppose we've looked back a lot, but we've also talked about what's going on in life right now and looked forward. we covered the whole spectrum and I really, really appreciate your time. I really, really appreciate your insight um, and honesty. And I just wish you nothing but the best luck and everything going forward. But Jane Adams, thank you so much for joining us on The Player's Voice.
1: Thank you very much, Al. It was a pleasure.
0: The Players' Voice podcast is brought to you by the Gaelic Players Association in collaboration with Real Talks. You can search the Players' Voice on whatever podcast platform you prefer to find previous episodes with the likes of Vicky Wall, Lee Keegan, Ashton Thompson and Neil McManus. We would also really appreciate it if you rated or reviewed the podcast. Don't forget, you can find out more about the GPA's BO360 programme by visiting bio 360gaelicplayerscom my name is Alan O'Mara and to find out more about my work as a performance and wellbeing consultant with sports and business leaders around the world please go to www.realtalks.e thanks for listening